The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Welcome back. Oh, it's so exciting to be here. I am uh, freezing uh, in the Midwest. Freezing my tits off, as we like to say. Well, it is the season. It's the season for that, right? Oof. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, not yeah. Los Angeles anymore. No, it was pretty cold in Los Angeles, yes, it, though. It got... I'm not going to complain about the weather. <laughs> yes, by not complaining about the Los Angeles cold, it got down to like 51. <laughs> no, no, no. It was like 45 degrees, humid, and overcast for like a week in Los Angeles. Oh, burr. Which for Los Angeles, <laughs> that's that's just pure misery in, in Los Angeles. Mm, okay. For for the for the rest of the world, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, not, not too bad. I often say that I left Florida because it was too cold there for me. That's so. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on the show today is Sayumbu Muktibram, and he's been on the show before, so he's returning. And this time, you did the interview, and and not me. Yeah, yeah, we did the interview. Uh, he was in Thailand when I was talking to him, which I think makes this the furthest zoom that we've done. Although we've done a few to Australia. Australia is probably about as far away as Thailand. Similar. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the movie is 13 Lives, right? Yeah, 13 Lives, directed by Ron Howard. It's about the uh, kids who were trapped in a cave in Thailand during a uh, monsoon and the people who had to figure out how to uh, go in and save them. To me, this is primo perfect Ron Howard material. Mm. And we talk about this a little bit because like when I think about Ron Howard, the movies of his that have stuck the most with me anyway, are movies like Apollo 13, Rush, Frost Nixon. Uh, His movies, when they fire on all cylinders to me, are often about everyone trying to solve the same problem. And the, the problem is the villain. So like in Apollo 13, obviously it's that this spaceship that's going to the moon true story starts malfunctioning and they have to figure out how to like improvise a way to keep these guys alive. This is a lot like that, right, right down to uh, problems with air. And uh, Mukti Pram does an amazing job. Uh, I don't want to spoil it too much from the interview, but it's like, I kind of assumed that they'd gone back to the real caves and stuff. Mm. Nope. All sets. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> That's really yeah. He did a great job selling that stuff. All right. So before we get to the interview, what do we have to talk about for our close focus segment of the show? Well, I think that we should talk about this, despite the fact that we both have a certain degree of ignorance to the actual material that we're talking about, Mm. which is Avatar 2, The Way of Water. Oh, yes. And I feel like we probably need to do a part two of this after we've seen the movie. Mm. Uh, I just haven't had a chance to see it. It opened and I was in the middle of traveling for Christmas with a four year old and there's no time to take in a three and a half hour uh, movie in, I, in, in that. I think it's only three hours. I, th- I, think, oh, okay. I think it's only three hours. Only three hours. They should put that on the poster. Oh, only three hours. It is actually three hours and 12 minutes, but you got to figure it probably like eight of those last 12 minutes are probably credits. So, you know, it's, <laughs> it's probably like, add some add some trailers onto the front of that and you're there for four hours. Uh, there, there, anyway, there is um, discussion on the Internet right now about when to take bathroom breaks, like what scenes are not worth sticking around for. So you can like you leave and come back. <laughs> Well, did you, there's a, there's did you hear what James Cameron said about that? James Cameron was like, uh, take a bathroom break whenever you want because you're going to see it again in the theater. It's like, <laughs> that's a very, a very confident, very, very confident man. That is but confidence. I, I feel like the thing about James Cameron, and it, it's happened so many times in his career, 
where that guy, he doesn't play small ball. He goes all in on every project. And as a result, it's like his projects just knock it out of the park. They make shit tons of money every single time. I think The Abyss might be the only movie that had kind of a tepid box office. It didn't like blow everybody's mind. But most of the other ones, especially like Titanic, everyone was ready for Titanic to fail because I think it was the most expensive movie ever made at that time. And of course, as we all know, Titanic won Best Picture, won a ton of Oscars, and also made, I don't know how much money, but just blew away the box office. Yeah. And he's only made one movie since Titanic, and that was the first Avatar, which everyone was like, what the hell is this? And then it is, uh, to this day, I believe, the highest grossing movie of all time when you adjust for inflation. Yeah, uh, he only takes moonshots, it seems like. He, no, his swings yeah. get bigger and bigger. Yeah, so it's taken him 13 years to get here. He's still kind of trying to get people into the high frame rate mode of watching his movies. So apparently if you go see the movie in 3D, there is some chance that, you know, look at the fine print because you might be also seeing it in high frame rate, but apparently the frame rate changes from scene to scene. So he's like playing with frame rates. So it'll be 24 frames per second. And then suddenly it'll be 48 frames per second with no warning. And some people find that very immersive and some people find that outrageously jarring. I haven't seen it yet, so I can't tell you which. You know, it, it's interesting because uh, I happened to watch Puss in Boots 2 last night and it's animated and they yeah. do a little bit of playing with frame rate in the animation style. And this happened a little bit as well in the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse animated movie. And I think actually in animation, you can make a slightly better case for it because you are making an approximation, since there's no camera there at all, of changing how smooth you want this animation to be at, at one point yeah. or another. But when you're talking about live action, and I don't know if Avatar really qualifies entirely as live action, because it kind of seems like it's a big cartoon. Yeah, it's kind of its a own hybrid. thing in a way. Yeah, well, yeah it's well, like real performance capture, real motion capture, a lot of CGI. Like mostly CGI. I'm going to go in with an open mind. Uh, like my first gut reaction is always uh, there is only one correct frame rate as your base for cinema. But I'm going to go in with an open mind being that I feel like Avatar is essentially animated or mostly animated. And who knows, maybe it'll work. I'm skeptical, but I'm still going in with an open mind. I'm going to try and make the best of it. But it's a bold choice. And the the comments on the social media networks has not been kind for most people. Some people love it. And they, they might also just love to watch a three hour sort of video game aesthetic. Uh, <laughs> other people have been vehemently opposed to it. And basically, if you to believe what they've written, this is the downfall of cinema, the downfall of art. This is like like something uh, as tragic as can oh, be. Oh, I mean, so, I mean, you know, look, I saw the Hobbit in high frame rate. The first one, ooh. I did not see the other Hobbits in high frame rate. And I was like, I hate this format. <laughs> I hate this format. Like, I hate like, you know, it's, I, I don't know. It's I, smooth scan at Best Buy or in your hotel room yeah, and you can't it, turn it off. It was well. And the thing is, it was smooth scan. But in a way, it was even worse because it was giving you way more information than smooth scan would give you. So you could like see the actor's contact lenses. It basically took what 24 frames made uh, kind of a cinematic experience in the Lord of the Rings movies. And then it made it look like you were just standing there looking at these people dressed like this. And it just looks like Ian McKellen in a community theater production of The Hobbit. Mm. And I found it really distracting. And like a lot of people said, I, I feel, and I agreed with this, like big landscape shots or aerial shots, they, I found less problematic than shots with actors in them. Will uh, aliens in high frame rate be bothersome? I don't know. You know, like I don't want to go see lots of movies made like this. 
I don't want to be also the get off my lawn old codger standing in the way of the evolution. I won't call it progress because it's not really progress. We had show scan in, you know, 1987 or something. It didn't catch on. (laughs) Yes, that's true. This idea has not caught on in the past. The thing that James Cameron has realized, it's not the biggest realization, is that 24 frames per second now is more of a choice. It's like show scan. You were running, what was, I think it was 60 frames per second, 35 millimeter film, uh, and then projecting it at 60 frames or whatever the frame rate was. Yeah, it was 48, I believe. So it was, it was double. And so film, of course, is very expensive, but data, not nearly as expensive as film. You know, like you're just using up more hard drive space. So there's really not a, a financial limitation, especially when you're James Cameron and you're, you're doing R&D on your movie for five years. Yeah. And speaking of that, though, didn't he make some outrageous claim about how much money the movie has to make just to break even? This is what I heard. And I would be happy for anyone to correct me and tell me I'm wrong. The number I heard was two billion, that the movie has to make two billion dollars in order to break even. Now, they shot Avatar two and three virtually back to back. So we're going to get treated to another Avatar next year. We don't have to wait 13 years for Avatar three. <laughs> But basically, you know, James Cameron, who I think is in so many ways, one of the most brilliant and forward thinking filmmakers, certainly of his generation. I'm a little bummed out that what we get from him is going to be sort of these ecology fables that are quasi animated blue people, you know, basically Fern Gully Mm. meets uh, the last samurai kind of things. And that that's the only world he's going to play in for the rest of his career, potentially. Like he's kind of said that Lightstorm, his company, isn't going to make any non-Avatar movies moving forward. Hmm. And I'd love to see his uh, particular genius applied to something else because he has been most of my life, he's been a humongous force, but also he's sort of been uh, the J.D. Salinger of filmmakers for the last 20 years, <laughs> more than 20 years. He's made one movie in 20 years. Well, now he's made two movies. And uh, I'm very interested to see what it is because I do think he's a master craftsman. One person said something that I think, uh, I think it was my friend Rob Shep said that a movie can be like pretty good and also fucking amazing at the same time. Hmm. And I think that's kind of what I'm going in expecting. I'm expecting story-wise to not really, the story is the thing to hang all of the genius stuff onto, not the other way around. It's not going to be a story that's going to like knock my socks off as a story. Hmm. Everyone is saying, like, visually, it's just a three-hour orgasm. (laughs) So, Uh, Well, it remains to be seen. Hey, if it really is $2 billion that it's got to make to make its money back, after this weekend, it's already 13% of the way there. So, you know. Yeah. Well, Well, that's the thing. Don't underestimate this guy because supposedly he had to bet all the money he was going to make to finish Titanic. And so he didn't really actually make that much money off of Titanic. Hmm. And Titanic was, you know, again, at the time, I think the highest grossing movie of all time. But also, like, I get into arguments with people because I don't love Titanic and people freaking love Titanic. I was like, "Eh, yeah, it's okay, whatever. And people are like, that is the best movie that has ever been made. And I'm like. Hey, enjoy. I'm not here to yuck your yum. I just don't. It didn't do it for me. I, I prefer the Terminator 2 James Cameron over every other James Cameron that ever existed or or the Abyss James Cameron. But eh, to each their own. And James Cameron as an artist is allowed to grow out of being my personal favorite guy. Like he doesn't have to make movies. He's not making it for me. He's making it for himself. That's for sure. Well, hey, I think it's a great place to leave it. Let's get to the interview with Sayambu Muktipram. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. 
in uh, Thailand. We're talking to the amazing Sayumbu Muktipram, who shot the new movie 13 Lives, which you can now watch streaming on Amazon Prime. An amazing, amazing film, like intense. My wife and I were watching it, and my wife kept hyperventilating and freaking out, you know, in the underwater scene. So thank you very much for coming back on the show. I'm a big fan of Ron Howard's. We've had Ron on the show, actually. What brought you into the orbit of Ron Howard to work on this film? Mm, good question. I think Ron just needs someone who, who know better Thailand than average, you know, and to be near him. But I, I mean, I feel like when, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm pretty familiar with a lot of your work and I feel like your work has a, a really strong point of view. And I feel like even in something like Suspiria, which is supernatural and amazing and fantastical, you're really good at grounding stuff and making it feel very real. And this is a story that just happened. I mean, it's only a few years ago that these kids were trapped in this cave. And it was hard for me to watch it without thinking of another Ron Howard movie, and that was Apollo 13, where it's basically about a bunch of people arguing about the best way to get someone out of a horrible situation. And mm-hmm. but stylistically, it's very, very, very different from Apollo 13 in that it Apollo 13 is cinematic and gorgeous and feels like maybe even an older movie. Like it's grandiose. This feels like raw and personal and like you're right there. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about the ways that you kind of uh, achieve that feeling? First of all, uh, Apollo 13 was twice times of the shooting days more than. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Right. What, you're, what you're doing also looks, I don't know how dangerous it really is, but it looks dangerous. You're yeah, doing yeah. real so, underwater stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, on the other hand, it fits quite well with the approach that we would love to have because of we don't want to kind of like set up a shot and set up another shot, but we rather have all the, the actor or the extra or what inside the frame. Mm-hmm. This way, it kind of mimics the way of we are in shooting documentary. Yeah, yeah. It really had a documentary feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why we, when we ready to shoot, we went very fast, you know, and trying to get rid of anything that bring us out of reality. Like, like even my camera, if it has to be under the rain, I go under the rain without any protection. Of course, you know, just plastic bag, but not, you know, fancy... Yeah cover or something like that to get the feeling of you know we are really in the like, environment when you're watching the movie you start to feel like you're yeah. wet you feel yeah, like that's you're correct. wet <laughs> yeah because when shoot when 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 we were shooting the camera operator was wet also oh you wow. see what I mean so so okay you feel the wet <laughs> <laughs> well and it's about, I mean and water is practically a character in this movie is there an approach that you take to filming underwater or the rain stuff or how to make water? Uh, I, I know it's not the cinematographer's job to make the water do what, what the water is going to do, but how did you approach it? My first task when I arrived in uh, Australia is to, to, to thinking about how to shoot underwater mm-hmm. because of this is so demanding task, right? So yeah. I started with my second unit, DOP, Andrew Lowlands. So I kind of establish, you know, the fundamental rules that we are going to shoot underwater. Mm-hmm. So we know what to deal with. I asked my colorist to supply me with a beam lot for Alexa. And we started working on that lot. Like we want to find out how 
mudslide above water, which yeah. you give to have the, you know, a good uh, amount of brightness intensity underwater. What kind of fuel line you're going to need? What kind of equipment you're going to need? So we end up with SRA with, you know, with the uh, underwater fuel protection. Yeah, yeah. Then when it's done, we have to split. I have to go to do first unit. Then Andrew Roland have to do second unit, which mostly he responds to do underwater shooting. So, I mean, how much were you interacting with second unit? Uh, you know, some people kind of send second unit on their way and, and it's separate. Yeah, yeah, people... yeah, yeah, yeah. They keep sending, they keep sending in, you know, they even have the well, real-time viewing from the second unit to first unit. Oh, wow. Yeah. But, I mean, I just I just have a time just to glance, but I have to concentrate on, on what second unit have to do. Yeah. So I have yeah. no time at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, and I kept... Yeah. I kept wondering while I was watching the movie, how much of the locations and stuff that you were in were real and how much of them were sets? No, 100% set. Really? All, yeah. all, the, all the caves, all the underwater stuff? Yes, yes, even in the front, except some shot at the very beginning of the movie when the kid uh, bicycling to the mountain. Yeah, yeah. That part, yeah, that part. That's the only part that we, we, we shot in real location in Thailand. And you said the rest of it was Australia, like uh, sound stages? Yes, yes. Was there any discussion about possibly, I mean, like, I know you probably wouldn't shoot the underwater stuff in real underwater caves because that sounds dangerous. Mm. But the, the stuff where in the, there's a lot of work inside the, these caves, was there ever discussion about doing that in real caves? Mm, no, not in real cave because of it's impossible. Anyhow. Yeah. So I mean, even because of we have to cut section of the cave to be able oh, to. Oh, yeah. It's impossible to, to shoot in real care. Uh, impossible. Yeah, I, I was wondering while I was watching it, like I didn't know that it was in Australia. And uh, I was like, I wonder if this is the real, like any, how much of this is the real place where it all ha really happened. But um, it makes total sense, especially for the underwater stuff. Uh, it is so suspenseful when they're underwater. W what were the references that you looked at? Yeah, mostly we look at the documentary. Oh, really? And because and, and, and of the reality that we feel that, we can bring the audience to feel that they are with the characters. That is the, the feeling that we really want. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that was, again, like, I, I don't know if I'm inartfully saying it, like, I love Apollo 13, but Apollo 13 feels like I'm watching a movie. And this feels like I am there in this space. And the suspense and the danger of it were so palpable. Were there any ways in terms of uh, your lens selection or what were the ways that you went about filming these situations to make it feel as claustrophobic and dangerous so, as it was? So, so I, I try to, to make the camera dynamic as much as I can. You know, I just put camera on my shoulder, trying to be static as much as I can, which is I can't. Yeah. <laughs> but is that me? Yeah, yeah. That, you know, that kind of feeling. Were you operating most of it? Yeah, yeah, I I operate a second uh, B camera in, in in first unit. Oh, okay. Why why is I I talk to a lot of cinematographers who operate B camera. Why don't you operate A camera? Because A camera have too much uh, responsibility for the shot. Mm -hmm. You have to be a bit away and look around. But you see what uh, I mean? But as a cinematographer, for, for the lighting, for the lighting. I, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, and I'm I'm just asking out of my own ignorance. But as a cinematographer, if you're operating B camera, how are you able to see what A camera is doing? Do you have a separate monitor and you're watching them as well? If you have enough experience, 
Yeah. You can have to, that, that vision. Okay. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah, you see yeah. what I mean? You see, you can have that vision. You know, what kind of shot that he get. You can even guess, you know, like, ah, he planned too, too late, I think. Okay, let's see. You see what I mean? Ah, yeah. This is perfect timing. You can, <laughs> you know, you, you can guess, you can feel. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've never asked anyone that, but I feel like I talk to a lot of cinematographers and it's Yeah, like... I mean, because of, because of the responsibility of the first camera mm-hmm. in terms of technical movement or, you know, it requires so many skill to make it happen. And you have mm-hmm. to be really focused on that, you know, task. So that prevents you from seeing the overall environment, which is very important for DOP. When, yeah, know, yeah. Well, and from a lighting standpoint, I, again, like I'm watching this movie and I seriously didn't know that it was all on sets. Although, you know, thinking about it, that's the probably the safest and best way to do it. And also probably the best environmental choice. But how did you go about the way that you lit it? It looked like I was in a real space. It didn't feel like a set at all. And I feel like that's an enormous testament to your lighting. What was your approach to that lighting? I mean, these are all locations where people would have to bring lights in anyway, you know, once you get inside caves and stuff. So were you using those, the kinds of lights people would use just to light that up? Or are you using a lot of movie fixtures and mix of the two? What was your approach? Yeah, you are, you are right. I use a lot of practical right? light. I mean, the light that they use for real inside the, the cave. So I have mm-hmm. to select very well what color, what intensity that I need, where to place it. Yeah. Yeah, but of course, then I need to, every step we have the open, overhead open, to have a kind of general ambient. But actually, there's no general ambient in, in the cave. You see what I mean? Because yeah, of, yeah. it's all covered. So, but we have to, to have that camera to record. But you have to have that in a very good, level so don't you don't feel that you know it's so obvious yeah 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 it's not so much different when you're thinking about how to lead the room with practical light it's not so much different yeah again if you're if you're in an underground cave you obviously like those people brought in li- all their own lighting yeah yeah because I'm, at the beginning I, I, I was thinking very hard what method that I, that I can use in this environment and I know it's going to be very fast according to what we have to do. So I have to set up something that very wide and broad and function very well for every angle of the camera. So at the end, I end up asking a lot of extra, even the actor themselves, to do my lighting task. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you hold it for me and point down when you talk? Yeah, say like that. So it bows. Uh, to the ground and you know bounce back to the face. Well, and, and you're working with like big movie stars like Colin Farrell and uh, Viggo Mortensen, but they also, I, I mean, I don't know either one of them, but they seem like they're the kind of people who'd be game to do that. Yeah, but I mean, actually, they are very professional actors. So, yeah, yeah. you know, we are having fun doing this. No, that's that's my point. It's like, they seem like they're yeah. the kind of people who would enjoy that. Yeah, yeah, Some actors might be like, you do the lighting, I'll do the acting. And yeah, but yeah. those those guys both seem like they're not they don't want to necessarily look like a perfect movie star in every shot. They want to look like yeah, these yeah. real guys in this situation. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's correct. I mean, I mean, at the end, I think like even people would found it fun to do it. I'm just imagining, though, like uh, as you describe that too, like how detailed were those sets that basically those guys could point a light in any direction and whatever the light hit, that set was going to look fine. 
Yeah, you have to give the credit to Molly Hill, the set the project yeah. designer, and the set builder. They they are, look so real, and I mean it's not only look real, but it have to support the body weight of the crew, yeah, and equipment. So you know it's a very difficult task for them, and they they make it very very well and very good. So, uh, like, what percentage of the crew would you say was from Thailand? No, zero. The crew is uh, oh, all from uh, Australia. Oh, it was mostly Australian? Oh, okay. Yeah, except some one art directors, you know, that in art department who take care of, mm. you know, Thai look on the set and a couple of a casting and producer from Thailand. Because, mm. like, we haven't had a lot of people from the Thai film industry on here, but when I worked in Thailand, I was shocked at how uh, vibrant the Thai film culture was, how many movies were made there. And I mean, this is going back to the 90s when I was there. But, you know, there's a big industry of, of filmmaking in Thailand, if I'm not mistaken, isn't there? Yes, yes, it's correct. I mean, we are one of the international hub of filmmaking, yeah. and we have a good quality film crews. The movie I worked on in Thailand, like I'd say two thirds of the crew were, were Thai and they were amazing. They, they did a great job. Yeah, that's correct. That's true. I feel like it's a true story, but it's also kind of a nail biting thriller. And it's in that tradition of movies where uh, basically the bad, the antagonist is the world, nature, whatever. It's it's not like yeah, that's one correct. Person. That's correct. That's correct. That's why when I first read the script, that make me very happy because of this is the movie that I see in my head. This kind of story, you can easily change it to superhero. Yeah, things. yeah. No, they didn't, they never felt like that. They they all felt like the real the real kinds of people. You know, and kind of looking at the work of yours that I've seen, like I feel like one of the things that really comes across is your work is really great with characters, and you take on stuff that's very genre sometimes, like Suspiria or Beckett. I don't know if it's about the way you choose the movies you work on or if it's something you bring to them, but that uh, the characters really come alive in your frame. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you do to make that happen? Yes, I think I did it, but I don't know how. I just, <laughs> I just give them, because for me, it's not about shooting. It's not about framing. It's about what they are going to do, how mm. they are going to do. Okay, okay, doing the way is good. So I put camera here, you know, to respond mm -hmm. to to their action or the movement, rather than you set up the camera and said, okay, you run in this way and go to the left. Well, you have another interview you need to do in a few minutes, and I think that that about wraps this up. Congratulations again on 13 Lives. Before we go, is there any place people can find you online, either to see your work or interact directly with you? Ooh, I have nothing. I just have... If you're not on social media, you have like four more hours in your day than I do, so congratulations. So thank you so much for coming on the show again. This is your, your second time on here. And I, I can't recommend highly enough for people to check out 13 Lives. It's on Amazon Prime. It's a really gripping thriller and it's a true story. And it's uh, it's just so well made. So uh, And it looks amazing. So thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you so much. So that was uh, Sayambu Muktipram. Hey, thanks again for being back on the show. And uh, I can't wait to see 13 Lives. I'm excited about this. Yeah. Well, I think it's on uh, Amazon Prime. So uh, you can go see it right now. If you, have, if you have Amazon Prime, you can just hop right on there and watch it right away. It may be in my immediate future, maybe in the next like 20 minutes. So we'll see. The, we'll the feel-good movie of Christmas 2022. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. 
And now, short ends. So, Ben, it is our short end time of the show. It's where we talk about sort of our obsession. It could be almost anything. It could be media. It could be technology. It could be something personal. What's your short end this week? Well, uh, I'm going to continue shilling for Adobe, as I want to do. Hmm. Uh, they released Never heard of a them. new... <laughs> little little company who uh, we might edit every episode on Adobe Audition. From the beginning, we've been using Adobe Audition for this show since, uh, what, 2013. So they came out with a new thing called Speech Enhancer. And I have yet to do the side-by-side with Descript, which I've also talked about on here. Mm. But Speech Enhancer, if you have audio that's got human speech, it is using AI. And AI is like, uh, Adobe calls it Sensei. Uh, Speech Enhancer uses Adobe Sensei and you can take your your audio and upload it uh, for free, I believe. I don't think you even need to have an Adobe Creative Cloud subscription. So if you have audio and upload it to Adobe Speech Enhancer and it will basically use AI to take everything out of it except for the voice, which Descript does. And I use Descript on a lot of pro- I have used Descript over the last two years on virtually every project I've done. Even when the audio is pretty good, if there was like a little bit of echo, I would run it through Descript, which you can do for free. It's a desktop thing, but it's actually uploading it to the cloud and then using AI to enhance it and then downloading a new file to your computer. Depending on what it is, it can take a while. I don't know how long uh, the Adobe Speech Enhancer takes, but I've watched a bunch of uh, demos of it and it will fix mic handling noise. Wow. It it will fix plosives. Wow. It will fix sibilance, you know, S's. Yeah, I get some of those. Uh, it will fix uh, reverb. Wow. <laughs> uh, and I think it will also fix distortion. My, I mean, like, you know, you hit a point where you can't bring it back. Yeah, yeah. But um, unlike a lot of the filters that we use in, uh, in Audition or Pro Tools or whatever, what it's looking at is it's saying, like, here are the missing frequencies or here's, you know, what your voice should sound like in this place. And it's making an AI interpretation, which my assumption is also sometimes I bet that comes out hilariously wrong. <laughs> but... yeah. But I have to say, like with Descript, again, which I've been using for well over a year, and, and they have a thing called Studio Sound, which I've been using. It's shockingly, it's it's more good than it is bad. I've hit a couple of instances where Descript couldn't do what I needed to get done. And so I just had to roll with the crappy original audio and try and repair it other ways. But I'm excited to try this because I'm assuming that Adobe is going to eventually bundle this into Premiere and Audition and, you know, the rest of the creative suite so that you can just use this stuff. That's my hope. You know, it, it's the equivalent of like, if you know how to use color grading or After Effects, if you're like, oh, there's a thing in the shot that we don't want. Uh, we could take an hour to move it or we could just live with it and paint it out. Right. And I feel like it's going to do that for audio where it's like, hey, a helicopter just went over, but we had the best performance ever. Uh, I have confidence that we can pull the helicopter out. Now that might be too much to pull out, but like I have confidence that I can uh, deal with the cat meowing, you know, two doors down, no problem. Or, or, oh, this room sucks, but I know that I can make it work in post without it being a humongous thing. Now there have been tools like Isotope RX, which is I think still the gold standard in repairing audio that's compromised, shall we say, but it's also very expensive. So if you're already spending money for the Adobe Creative Cloud, or again, like I don't think you even need to have a Creative Cloud subscription, check it out, run your audio through Adobe Audio Enhancer, see if it makes an improvement. Hmm. 
Cool. It sounds awesome. Yeah. I went to the Adobe website while we were chatting here and I found Sensei and uh, you can click on Adobe AI for creative projects and it just takes you to creative cloud. So uh, it it must be, you know, integrating into some of the stuff. uh, Like anything that they use that uses AI of any kind. So like the, if you transcribe your audio in Premiere, which I, again, I use that on any, on virtually everything. Anyway, enough uh, waxing Adobe's car. Uh, Ilya, can you tell me what is your short end? Well, I had a really nice Facebook uh, messenger conversation with a client just this morning, and we do this thing. Basically, it starts around Black Friday, and it's not uh, something that at least I'm aware of that any other camera shop does. So here I'm taking off my podcast host hat and putting on the uh, president of Hot Rod Cameras hat. We do a thing called an unadvertised sale. And the only way that people know about the unadvertised sale is is basically word of mouth. And we we do it basically every year starting on a Black Friday and it goes to the end of the year. I teased it a little bit on this podcast before, but I'm going to give a little bit more information. Um, we have some clients in particular who want to shop for exotic items, expensive items, large professional items that never go on sale. There are some items that you, the thing you could hope for maybe most is that the manufacturer decides to do like a 0% financing deal. That's about the most you can hope for, for some items. Some items just never go on sale and they always take months to get. And sometimes uh, it, it is impossible for the dealer like us to actually put things on sale because the margin is just too small. Like we couldn't, we make such little money that, you know, single digit margin. We're not talking about like 50% margin. We're talking about like 8% margin or 9% margin or some terrible low amount of margin where we don't have the ability to discount. But there are some items that never go on sale, which do have margin. And during this time of year, the last sort of month of the year, we like to do an unadvertised sale. And the only way to get in on the unadvertised sale is to call or email the shop. But if you do this and say, hey, look, I'm looking for this package of stuff, or I'm looking to buy this, or I need to spend $20,000 on lenses, what can you do for me? We basically are able to find some sort of extra money, some savings for everyone. And no other camera shop that I'm aware of does this. And we, we literally, if it's at all possible, if it's something that we can put on sale, we do put it on sale. And because this is a dealer based sale, we don't have the margin that the manufacturer does, but occasionally what someone wants to buy does have large margins. And so they can actually realize a bunch of savings. Or if you've been trying to like buy something for a long period of time, like, you know, I just can't afford it like this. I need to get something off. This is the time of year to actually do it, but you can't, reference like a website. You can't reference a coupon code. And there's a lot of people out there who shop as consumers. And sort of the the stereotype of the uninformed, uneducated consumer is, is that they go online, they look around, they find what it is, they might do a Google search or something else and go, ah, oh, that's the cheapest one. That's the one I'm going to add to cart, buy it. But if you've never worked as a business or you're not actually a business or shopped as a business. That's not how the business world works. The business world, when it's a business to business, usually it's a whole quoting process or it's a bid process. It's a process in which prices are often negotiated and deals are negotiated, especially like on volume. So if you're looking to spend huge money, hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, it makes way more sense to talk to a business than to try to buy the items you want to buy 
as a consumer, as, as retail. So I know we've just lost a bunch of the audience, but I'm trying to offer a little bit of insight <laughs> insight here in that. Um, no, Ellie, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapped in attention. Keep going. <laughs> if you, you can't do this at a Best Buy, you can't do this at our competitors online. If you try to just, you know, reach out to these places and say, hey, I want to buy X and I, I'd like a better deal. They're going to say pound sand. We, we can't do anything for you. But when you're working with a business, especially a company that is set up for B2B, for that B2B sale, not that B2C sale, you know, there's all these other doors that are open to you, not just with pricing, but also with uh, potentially financing, with all kinds of issues. Now, there are some things that are, it might be considered slight disadvantage when you work as a business instead of a, a consumer. Return policies with businesses are generally a lot less liberal. You know, hey, 30 days, no questions asked, you can send it back. That usually doesn't happen when you're working with the, as a business. In fact, in parts of the world, that doesn't even exist for consumers. I know in China, that is like uh, completely verboten. You might get seven days at most, but you know, this isn't China. This is, this is a different place. And I will tell you though, that as a business that tries to help other businesses, and by that I'm including professionals who go out and own their own gear and shoot their stuff. What we're doing is offering an alternative, a way for people to get what they're looking for and save some money. And it's not something that we can actually go and specify because all of our dealer agreements with all the major brands out there say that we can't advertise below certain prices. It's called map pricing or minimum advertised price. And if I can offer a tiny bit of education and help people save money and do better and God forbid, click on like, you know, a YouTube link or click on someone out there and, and buy it at, you know, a big online retailer like like an Amazon or something like that. You can do way better than that sort of pricing, especially if you're looking to buy a lot of stuff. But you have to shop differently. You don't get those sorts of deals. You don't get that sort of high end technical service. You don't get someone who's going to completely uh, help you with whatever it is you want to do, because frankly, those those big consumer places. They don't actually employ people who, who know what it is that you're trying to do. They just employ people who are trying to sell you stuff. So my long winded thing here is that if you need to spend money, especially during the last month of the year, possibly because of your taxes, you want to, you got to spend money or you're going to lose it. You should hit up hot red cameras. You should call the main office or you should email at hot red cameras and say, I'm looking to do this. I've heard about the unadvertised sale that was being mentioned on the podcast and you will get back a quote, most likely with a discount, which will make your life so much easier and better for you to recoup your expense for the type of work that you do. So, so you're advertising the unadvertised sale. Yes, I'm advertising the unadvertised sale. But this is again, this is word of mouth. And I'm not actually specifying particular brands. You know, there are brands. If I was to say any brand, that would get me in trouble. If I was to say actual discount amounts, that would get me in trouble. So what I'm saying is the there is a sale going on. I can't tell you anything about it. But if you do want to save some money, uh, here, here's how you would, you would go about doing it. And I got a thank you, a really, really nice thank you via Facebook from a client who was like, thanks so much. I've been looking at this forever. I could never save a penny on it. And now I bought twice as many because of what what you were doing. So that that's oh, really nice. great. Yeah. So uh, I'm happy that I could make someone happy. I'm happy that we could do this. And we will keep doing this typically in basically from five weeks before the end of the year, uh, probably until the end of time, because you kind of have to be in the know. You have to know that this is going on. You have to make a request. And if you're not shopping like a consumer, you'll definitely save some money and, and get a better experience to boot. Can you tell me to pound sand anyway? Pound sand, Ben. <laughs> oh, it feels good. I anyway, love it when people tell me to pound sand. Hey, let's let's thank some people today. Who do we have to thank? Uh, I mean, as always, we have to thank Alana Cody. Uh, Alana, who has set up some just outrageously exciting interviews. We might have done one of my bucket list interviews of all time yesterday. 
It's true. But that story is even more complicated. <laughs> and I'm not going to get into that on here. But still, a very, very exciting interview. One of the ones when we started this podcast. Maybe we can get this cinematographer on. We've talked to them. Yeah, it's great. So, it's true. Who else should we thank? Uh, ben Katz, who I really feel bad uh, for the job I'm making him do today because uh, my on-the-road rig is a little uh, a little jankety. And then uh, last but never least, none of these people are least, uh, Kay Zalatrakshi, uh, who composed every scrap of music that you've heard on the podcast. You can find everything you've ever wanted to know about Kay's at musicbykays.com. Uh, go there, message him literally anything. Come on, people. There's uh, many thousands of you listening to my, the sound of my voice. Somebody just say anything to Kay's. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but uh, Case is a phenomenal, no. <laughs> phenomenal composer, director. He's a VFX guy. He's a color grade maestro. He's telling me that AI is putting us out of business. To that, I say, Case, you're putting all of us out of business because you do all the jobs. I was going to say, I don't think Case is about to go out of business because of AI. I think that he's <laughs> probably pretty safe. Case uh, maybe is AI. Oh, oh he is shit. AI. Now, oh, man. That's the twist at the end of the movie. <laughs> Ooh, that's freaky, freaky, freaky. Uh, all right, Ben, uh, where can people find you if they want to track you down? Uh, please find me in Dayton, Ohio, freezing my tits off. You can find me online at benrock.com. Uh, you can find me in many places at Neptune Salad, including Twitter and Mastodon. So if you're uh, sickening of the bird place, as many of us are, or the bird site, whatever people are calling it, feel free to hit me up on Mastodon and, uh, you know, check out, oh, I didn't even talk about the NFT that I released last week, but uh, maybe we can talk about that next week. I think that sounds like a plan. Hey, speaking of random things, I heard someone refer to uh, Yahoo as the website at what the cowboy says. I'm like, what the cowboy oh. says? Oh, okay, what the cowboy says, that that website, I was like, Yahoo? <laughs> yeah, okay, anyway, Yahoo. You know, so, I'm cool with Mastodon, but I'm not cool with calling my posts toots. I'm toots. sorry. Are I'm they really toots? Is that what they are? That's what they call it. I'm uh. not doing it. You know, when I first got on Twitter, I didn't want to call them tweets. And I eventually we all got inured to the stupidity of Twitter. Yes. And uh, maybe, the, maybe the same will happen with Mastodon. My guess is we're not going to like fully commit to another microblogging site like that. You know, it's, it's going to be a bit of Hive, a bit of Mastodon, a bit of Twitter, a bit of Post. You know, there's a bunch of them right now. So anyway. Well, you can also find me over at Hot Red Cameras if you were still listening to this after my whole tirade about uh, shopping. And if you guys don't want to hear any more shopping tips, then email me, uh, message me at uh, LinkedIn or at Hot Red Cameras. I'm just Ilya at Hot Red Cameras and tell me you don't want to hear about it and I, I won't talk about it anymore. So. All right. Well, Ilya, let's let's take us out. All right. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.